Hello and just about good afternoon everyone. Welcome to another online Power Planners Assembly. Uh, before we kick off, I'd like to say a big thank you to our supporters this year. Uh, that's our friends at Aegon, Barnett Waddingham, Just, MNG Wealth, Novia, Parmenian, Timeline and Transact. If you haven't followed us here on Crowdcast already, there's a button towards the top, you can do that. And then we can let you know when we're going live and what's going on and all sorts of good things like that. Um, these are very relaxed and informal sessions, very interactive as well. It's your chance to join in, say hello and ask questions, all those kind of things. Um, and some of you found the chat room already. Um, so you can pop a question in there or pop any comments inside there. And I'll monitor those as we go and bring them up. Um, so to test it's working, can you just let us know where you're tuning in from today? So pop your location in the chat room. I'm in Sheffield, where all the snooker is going on at the moment, and it's a bit grey and overcast and, and not too nice at all. Um, this is being recorded, and a replay will be made available shortly afterwards um, if you want to come back and watch it again. And we're also doing podcast versions of these now, and you can download that and listen to it uh, on your podcast player of choice as and when you want to. So, oh, good spread of people here all over the country, which is good. Um, nice to see. Um, quick notice of one more event we've got coming up in a few weeks' time, which is our personal development power ups for power planners on the 12th of may um, we'll pop a link in the chat room now we've got a few tickets left on that one um, looking really good content um, so if you'd like to come along and join us on that one please do we've got a poll running um, so on the right hand side of your screen there's a little kind of bar chart icon if you pop in there um, we're going to ask you do you think your firm is ready for consumer duty or not um, so please jump over there uh, and let's uh, have your vote and i'll have a look and see what the answers are a bit later on Right, uh, let's get into the meat of today. So we've had RDR, we've had MIFID 2, we've had PROD, and now we've got consumer duty. Are they all linked? Are they different? Who cares? Um, what does it all mean for power planners is, is the main thing we're looking at today. Um, so we're going to ask these questions and provide answers to them as well, as well as covering any questions you've got uh, in the chat room as well. And I'm really pleased to be joined by two people coming at this from slightly different perspectives to share their experiences and thoughts. So first of all, Gemma, welcome to you. Could you please introduce yourself? Sorry, I lost you there slightly, um, Richard. Um, so I'm Gemma, um, I work for a company called Compliance and Training Solutions. I've recognized some of the names that are popping up on the right-hand side there. Um, so we deal with compliance for financial advisors and firms, small firm, independent firms across the country. Um, so I've been doing this now for about 10 years. Um, and trying to make sense of the FCA jargon and regulation and try and help you navigate your way through it. Brilliant. Thank you. And welcome, Gemma. And Stephen. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephen Cameron. And I'm Public Affairs Director at Egon. I'm glad to see that we've got some uh, dialing in from Scotland so at least some people will be able to follow my accent. Um, my role at Egon is I uh, head our lobbying and regulatory analysis of anything coming ahead from the government or from the regulators. So I've been looking at the consumer duty in its previous guises for a few years now, uh, led our consultation responses, and I'm still trying to uh, liaise with the FC to get clarification on certain points. Well, there are many other people in Egon who are uh, now responsible for implementing the, the new duty. I'm particularly interested in making sure that we continue to collaborate with the advisor community because to me, consumer duty will only deliver on its full potential if we're all working together. So pleased to be here today. Brilliant. Um, welcome to you both. So just looking at the poll, um, a slim majority, 60% say yes, we're ready for consumer duty, but a significant minority, about 40% saying no, we're not. Um, and one of you says, what's consumer duty? Um, well, hopefully by tuning in today, you're going to find out um, if, if you really don't know what it is um, already. So for those of you that are new to this, uh, let's have a quick overview of what consumer duty is designed to do. So Gemma, do you want to answer that from kind of an advisor and power planner perspective? Yeah, so consumer duty, so the FCA obviously regulate right the way from as what I would class as cream as the crop, financial advice and financial planning right the way down to claims management companies um, car insurance and um, PPI market um, what consumer duty is about is it's trying to help the FCA meet their objective or two, well, two of their main objectives one being um, fair outcomes for clients and making sure that client harm is minimized and two improving trust in the financial services regime um, and the markets that we look after 
So what consumer duty is for us is it's not a case of the FCA telling us we were doing everything wrong or, or something new. If you look at the consumer principle that they're introducing, it's a firm must act to deliver good outcomes for consumers. We're already doing that. Um, our, our level of the industry, this is something that we do day in, day out. We know our clients, we, we look after our clients. So what it's asking firms to do is take a step outside of your business for a second and look back into it and go, are we doing everything that we possibly can? Are we doing the best that we possibly can for our clients? And it might be the answer to that is yes, there is no, no changes needed. We're doing everything we possibly can. It's made it. But then there might be other things that you might think, well, actually, we could do a little bit better at this or we could do a little bit better at that. So what it, what consumer duty is for financial planning firms and specifically power planning, if we're looking specifically power planners, it's looking at what aspects of our job could we streamline? What aspects of our job could make the client interaction better? How can we help clients understand what we're doing more? Um, how could we work better with our clients? And that's ultimately what, what consumer duty is about for us. Yeah, that's that's a really good um, summary there. Just from a kind of power planning point of view, a lot of the, the advisors that, that we work with um, are doing this stuff anyway. Um, it's often just a case of maybe refining what they're doing and documenting it, which is often the case, you know, with what the FCA comes with. So, Stephen, from a provider's point of view, what does consumer duty mean to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, quite a lot of uh, similarities to, to what Gemma's just, just said. Um, Obviously, we've had treating customers fairly in the past. Um, we and, and if you've embraced treating customers fairly fully, you should have been really thinking about the the outcomes for for end customers. But this this raises the bar significantly, and obviously, the FC is seeing this as replacing, not refining, TCF. So we're looking at this as uh, again an opportunity to step back and to really consider if um, to, to test all of what we're doing at the moment to see if we are delivering good outcomes across the piece for our customers, to re-examine how we're connecting up with others in the distribution chain to deliver on that. So we have a major uh, project in place, very major project in place, covering all parts of the business. Every single person in Egon, there will be some way in which they can help um, deliver good outcomes for, for customers. Uh, we have various work streams looking at the outcomes, looking at culture, we have a lot of training on the go, um, and uh, you know, and, and, and a lot of this is about checking that you're doing the right things, and then evidencing that you're doing the right things, and documenting the process you went through to come to those conclusions. Brilliant, thank you. There's there's um, quite a lot on the chat already, uh, which is good to see. So, just uh, I like Justin's question, uh, which came saying, "Why does the FCA not run TV ads saying that IFAs are the best place to go for advice?" and some good answers there. I think probably it's because it's not just IFAs that are regulated by the FCA and not just IFAs that pay the FCA's fees. So I think they have to remain a little bit kind of unbiased, uh, to use, use a word there, uh, around that. Um, also, can you imagine the problems if they started doing that? It's like, oh, no, don't go there. But um, good question. Um, and <laughs> Justice says, I just want people to stop edging away from me nervously at parties when I say I'm a financial advisor. You should try saying to someone that you're a power planner. Um, go on and explain that one. Um, so um, excellent. Great. Well, um, we're going to touch on jargon a bit later on when it comes to communications. But there is, as always, a little bit of jargon going on inside consumer duty. So I want to start with some of the high level definitions. So we've got manufacturer and we've got distributor and we've also got co-manufacturer um, just to kind of have a bit of a hybrid one there. So, Gemma, do you want to kind of kick off with what, what do you see as being a manufacturer and a distributor? Okay, so this was, to be quite honest, at the beginning of the year, this was quite clear. Um, so in terms of providers, fund managers being the manufacturers, uh, financial advisors being the distributors, because we're the ones dealing with the end client um, and the client walking away with the product. However, um, some of you may have attended some of the FCA workshops that have been run over the past sort of couple of months. The FCA have defined their definition of what a manufacturer is. And essentially, to be a manufacturer, you are creating a product. So if you as a financial planning firm are creating a portfolio for a client and you are the one selecting the product, the funds that are going within that, the provider, and you're creating that product, then that in effect makes you a manufacturer. If you're working alongside a DFM, for example, and you're having um, a say in what the portfolio is going to look like and the underlying funds, 
that then makes you a co-manufacturer because you're you're not solely responsible for it. You're equally responsible for it alongside the DFM. And then a distributor is the person who's then passing it on. In addition to that, whilst we would consider our ongoing propositions to be a service, the FCA are also looking at if you are creating a service for your clients. So you're saying that with your annual review process, you're going to give or with your ongoing service, you provide an annual review, you provide investment packs or you do two review meetings a year. That in itself is also what the FCA are considering to be a product. So they're saying you're manufacturing your ongoing advice, advice proposition. Obviously, then that triggers issues regarding deadlines um, because the, the deadlines for consumer duty are quite clear in that values assessments need to be completed by manufacturers by the end of this week, so as, as a Sunday. And then for distributors, that's in July. But however, we can't because our end client is the client. We need to have the fund manager and the provider's information to be able to even start looking at a values assessment. Um, the deadlines don't apply in that scenario. Um, so whilst you will be an IFA, and I noticed that somebody's commented saying that most won't most IFAs be classed as manufacturers. That is correct. Pretty much everyone across the board will be classed as a manufacturer. Um, we don't necessarily need to follow the deadline of the end of this week for values assessments for that. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that was clearer at the start of the year, wasn't it? Um, Stephen, it was. anything, you want, anything you'd like to add around the, the kind of the different uh, definitions there? Yeah, I, I agree that it was a bit of a surprise to see that clarification. I always felt it was slightly awkward when they always talked about products and services at all parts of the real book. And I used to think, why do you not talk about products there? And why don't you talk about services there? And they lumped it all together and it's almost like, aha, they had a, a master plan going on behind the scenes that they were suddenly going to announce that an advisor when designing a service was a manufacturer of that service. So, yeah, I think um, it's almost like uh, consider what you're doing and, and don't class yourself as one or the other. Consider each of the activities that you're undertaking and, and seek to work out what what the duty should mean in a proportionate sense for that activity that you're undertaking. So, yeah, um, products and services, distributors, manufacturers, it, it has all become a little bit uh, muddled, um, but just step back and, and try to do something that you think makes sense. Yeah, you, you can fall into several camps, kind of. It takes it back, takes it back to GDPR when you've got data processors, data controllers, and you can be both or not. There's like, what's going on there? Um, so um, that wasn't the question I was going to put. That Aaron's um, come up with a good question, actually. Basically, could anybody ever be regarded only as a distributor? I suppose the only only time I can think of would be if you were if you didn't have an ongoing service proposition. Um, that would be the only time you could be only a distributor. I think for the general population of IFAs around in, in the country, you'll be both. You'll be a manufacturer and a distributor. Um, so both sets of rules apply. Yeah, I guess a, a purely transactional relationship might come under um, distributor only. But I think most of the advice and financial planning firms I come into contact with, they're going to come under both. Um, so excellent. Now, you mentioned deadlines already. Um, we've had a deadline in October. We've got a deadline on Sunday and we've got another deadline in July. What were or are all these deadlines? Uh, Gemma, do you want to kick off on those? OK, so the October deadline was around, I think, actually just rewinding slightly. With all of the previous things that have come into effect with the FCA, um, they've had a deadline and that's it. There's just been an, an end deadline of when something needs to have been achieved by. And I think the FCA have realised themselves that that end deadline comes, it goes, and people are still sat there twiddling their thumbs thinking, I don't, I don't know what I should have been doing by now. So with Consumer Duty, just to highlight the importance of it, they've, they introduced the October deadline, which was a deadline for firms to have understood what Consumer Duty is, looked at their firm from a very high level perspective and understand what action am I going to need to take to be able to meet the deadlines in July. So there are no right or wrong answers for that assessment back in October. Um, some firms might have an action list as long as you're on. Um, other firms might only have one or two things on their list to be able to, to, to do. Um, but ultimately, October was the date by which everyone really should have understood what the new rules are going to be and what they as a firm need to do before July. 
then obviously we've got the end of April deadline. So this is the manufacturer's deadline for getting the values assessments. So the providers, fund managers to sit down and work out exactly how they're adding value and what how they calculated their costs and how that adds value to, for consumers. And then we've got the then July deadline, which is for ensuring that we have our values assessments completed as distributors at the end of the chain. Um, and also that we have looked at all of the other principles and that we're comfortable that if challenged, we can evidence that our clients are walking away from our meetings, understanding what what they've just done, um, that we're evidencing that we're looking after our clients, not just at the outset of the relationship, but all the way through the relationship. And that we have a really clear um, relationship with our clients that's providing value for money. Hmm. So a couple of questions that have come up in the chat, uh, which I think it'd be a good time to cover now. So uh, where are we? Here we go. Let's have that one there. So Kaylee's come up with this question. Do you think outsourced power planners are distributors only? So broadening that out a bit, um, do power planners have a particular responsibility um, under consumer duty or is it mainly at a firm level? And do outsourced power planners like, like myself come into play at all in this? So should, obviously we're not regulated, so I don't think we do, but what do you think, Gemma? Okay, so it's, it's an interesting one because obviously I work in an outsourced compliance company. Um, so I'm outsourced, but the regulations don't apply to me. Um, however, when I'm working with a firm, I'm, I feel as though I'm part of that team and I will work with that team as if I'm a member of staff with them and trying to, to work. So I suppose it depends on your definition of an outsourced provider. It depends on the service that you're providing to your firm. In terms of distributor and manufacturer, that won't apply to an outsourced power planner. You don't need to be doing values assessments. That's not part of your, your job. And the responsibility for consumer duty will fall within the, the financial planning firm that you're working for. That is their responsibility to ensure that the, the criteria is met. But you do have a huge part to play because who's going to challenge the advisors? You're, you're the ones that are potentially building those portfolios. You're writing those reports. Who's challenging the advisors if the objectives aren't documented clearly or if there's no clarification as to, well, why are you doing this? And you've, I think your role is really paramount in making sure that advisors are challenged. And it's almost like an extra pair of eyes that's looking at the process because do you understand what the advisor is recommending? Do you fully understand that? And if not, well, the client's not going to understand it. So it's it's adding that extra level of challenge to, that you can use back to the firm. Um, so, yes, whilst you don't have the responsibility, you have that empowerment to be able to challenge the firms and to say, well, how does this meet? How, can, how are you evidencing that what you're doing is meeting the consumer outcome? And you can help develop the firm that way. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, we are part of the, the service delivery proposition that an advisor offers to their clients. So, um, you know, every advisor should make sure that any outsourced partner they're working with, you know, is fit and proper for what they're doing and, you know, meets certain standards and there should be due, dil due diligence on, on them all. Certainly um, that that's what we find with the people we work with. And it's all part of, you go back to products about delivering great outcomes for the clients. And, and that's where Parapani fits in. I mean, obviously consumer duty takes it a little bit further, um, but, that's a really good answer. Just one more thing on, on these, these deadlines. What happens if a firm misses a deadline? And a sub question is somebody watching this today realizes, oh my word, we're actually a manufacturer, our advice firm, as well as a distributor. We're not going to get anything done by Sunday. What happens? Does it take me a while, go straight to jail, or what's the outcome? <laughs> okay, so we're all human um, at the end of the day, and the FCA are human as well. Whilst most people don't want to believe it, they are human. Um, with the FCA is an outcome based regulator. So they, they tell you what the rules are going to be based on the outcome that they want to achieve, but they don't necessarily give you the specifics in terms of exactly what that looks like. So the deadline will come in July. Are you going to get a phone call on the 1st of August to say, give me all of your consumer duty stuff? No, it's very unlikely that that's going to happen. What will happen, though, is the FCA will do a thematic review. So they will contact firms across the board. So financial planning firms right the way down to the claims management company. And they will ask for the evidence of how they're meeting the cross-cutting rules and how they're meeting those outcomes. The FCA will go away. They'll digest all that, that information. And as with all of the previous legislation that's come into effect, they will then release a review. That review will show all of the good practices. It will detail exactly what the FCA have liked, what they've out of what they've seen. And it will also detail the stuff that they haven't liked. Now, with anything new and when you're not being prescriptive in terms of here's a document, you need to give this document back to me. 
in the same view as like a values assessment, the FCA haven't given us a document and said, answer all of these questions and tick a box at the end, because this isn't a tick box exercise. There will be some things that the FCA will look at and go, or you'll do, you'll do loads of work for it. Um, you'll send them up all of their documents and the FCA might look at it and go, well, no, I don't agree. That's fine. That's not a problem at all. They will give you ways of that you you have your justification, you have your evidence, you've got your reason behind it. The FCA don't have to agree. They will then come back and say, well, actually, we'd rather you did X, Y and Z. And that's then when you adapt the process. So it's not a case of July will come. Everything will fall apart if you haven't done everything. But you do need to have done something. So you need to have some evidence there, some evidence that you understand what the duty is and some evidence of how you're meeting the outcome based requirements. Yeah, exactly. If, if it's not written down, it didn't happen, did it? Um, let, let's get into some of the, the kind of the detail then. Let's start off with target market assessments. And I think there's been a bit of confusion around these. So, Stephen, do you want to kind of talk us through what these are and what we should be thinking about from a power planning perspective? Mm -hmm. So if we can start with, with the FC's requirements around target markets before we get into the assessments, um, as a, a provider of a, a product or, in fact, of a service, then the FC does expect you to be able to show that you've designed that product or that service with a particular target market in mind. Um, so that, that's the first, the first point. And that can be by explaining the types of customer who you think are appropriate. It can also be about explaining which types of customers it would not be appropriate uh, to, to offer the product or the service to. So, so that's the first point. And then when you carry out an assessment, it will be, um, are you selling that product? Is it, is it that target market who are buying that product or that, or that service? I think within target markets, um, certainly from a product perspective, but also from, a, 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 from an advice service perspective, you'll have a, a range of different approaches. Some will define the target market quite in quite specific detail. So if it's a, a high-risk product or service, for example, defined benefit transfer advice, then you may actually define that target market in quite a lot of granular detail. If, on the other hand, it's a, a workplace pension to be used for auto-enrolment, then the target market might be very wide and, and, and general. So it's about thinking about how detailed your definition needs to be. I also think that after you've defined your target market, it's not like you then treat everyone within that target market in exactly the same way. First of all, you've got to think about vulnerable customers and how you would adapt your product or service to meet the needs of customers with vulnerabilities. And you may also, if you've got a very wide target market, find that you've got customers with, um, with very significant sums to invest and others with, with modest sums to invest. And then you've got the whole question of how do you design your, your pricing? So we know that the FCA give an example of um, if you charge a percentage of funds for your clients and that's flat across all your client base, is it reasonable to be charging 50 basis points for someone with 50,000 and the same 50 basis points for someone with 5 million? And I think the inference is, no, it isn't right to charge 100 times as much to the latter as you did for the former. So I think that's when you've got your target markets, but you might then need to segment within those target markets when it comes to things like uh, designing your, your charging to make sure you are delivering good value within that target market. That leads us nicely into value for money assessments. Um, and, and there's two aspects. We'll, we'll touch on the, the kind of the, the advisor firm one in a second, and I'll come to Gemma on that one. Um, but Stephen, um, the deadline is Sunday for manufacturers, providers like, like yourselves at Avon to actually publish your value for money assessment. I haven't seen one yet. Um, and I, I think yours is coming out very soon. But can you just explain that? that how do you go about this as a provider and what should we as power planners be looking out for when we can get our hands on them? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I've not been responsible for designing ours, but I've been having a look at, uh, at what we have produced. I've got one here, but um, you'll be able to access this on the Egon Consumer Duty Hub. Uh, we're, we're putting these up as, as we speak. And the, the approach that we've we've taken is that there's the outcome of the value assessment. That's a very specific thing, which, which anyone distributing our products will need to see. 
but there's also other information which we as a manufacturer need to provide around the product. So we need to explain the target market, as you see, we've just we've just talked about that. So we will explain who's in the target market and who the product might not be suitable for, the kind of negative target market. We'll be explaining the distribution strategy that we think is appropriate for the product. We'll then be summarising the, the key benefits that we see within, within the product. Um, again, we already provide that sort of information, but we're pulling it all together into a single document, so the key benefits and characteristics of the product, any risks that we see um, associated with the product, which can link into foreseeable harm, uh, a bit about vulnerability and how we respond to characteristics of vulnerability, a section on charges, and then we'll give the outcome of the value assessment. And when, we, when we're coming up with our value assessment, we've considered whether or not the product is meeting all, all the requirements of all of the outcomes within the consumer duty. So it's not just about price, price and value, it's about, it's about all four of the, the outcomes. And, you know, the, the good news is we will be able to, as a result of that, be able to conclude that the product is delivering fair value. Um, we will also explain the kind of uh, criteria that we followed in arriving at that. Now, the FCA isn't saying to a distributor or anyone in the distribution chain, you need to second guess someone who says this product or service is fair value. But I do think that um, uh, if I were a distributor, I might want to have a little bit of an understanding about how the manufacturer arrived at their conclusion rather than just saying, yep, yep, it's all fine here. So we have explained a little about how we've gone through that uh, value assessment and and the sorts of criteria we've taken into account. So um, the, the one I've got in front of me is four pages long, if you want a kind of uh, a feel for, for, for the length of these. Um, and, I, and I think that that will be a case of reviewing these to identify any any surprises or any exceptions or any uh, negative target markets um, rather than than suddenly getting uh, new information about, oh, this is a, the, 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 the characteristics of the product. But it pulls it all together so that you've got something in one place to help you as a distributor comply with, the, with, with your responsibilities. Thank you. Um, we've just popped the link to the Agon Consumer Duty Hub actually in the chat room, so I'm sure it'll be posted up there um, pretty soon. Um, right, let me play devil's advocate now and put you on the spot. And you don't have to answer this with an Agon hat on, but can you think of any situations when a provider might publish this and say, do you know what? We don't think we're fair value for money in this particular area. Um, I think that if you are not offering fair value and um, and, and fair value assessments are on a forward-looking basis, so it's about will, you, will the product offer fair value looking ahead. And if you've not got any um, uh, mitigating actions to take to, to, to bring the product or fund into, into fair value, then I think the product would have to be withdrawn or, or stopped being sold. So um, you might find that some funds, for example, uh, from fund managers, have just not been delivering to their their um, their targets or to, to, to in line with their, their their descriptions, and there may be some funds which have to be withdrawn temporarily until they can be brought into compliance with the consumer duty. As we know, the fund management industry has been carrying out value assessments for some time. Um, so, so that would be an example of where you might say, "No, I I, I can't offer this." Um, to for, for new business and if as a platform you're you're offering access to that fund you would then stop access to that fund through the platform um i think that any provider who's been following treating customers fairly if one of their mainstream products was just not delivering uh fair value then then then, then that's that's a bigger issue and I'd, I'd be quite surprised if we saw that coming through Brilliant. Um, so Gemma, I'm a power planner. Tuesday morning after the bank holiday, I log into providers' websites and download their, their value for money assessments. What should I do with that? What should I be looking for? What should I be thinking about? So obviously, the first thing is going to give you an idea of what the value assessment is going to look like. Um, but bearing in mind, again, the FCA has not been prescriptive in terms of what these are meant to look like. So one provider might look completely different to another provider. So they, they still may not follow a standard format and your value assessment may not necessarily 
follow that format either. Um, essentially, the value assessment is going to be something that it's just that extra layer of due diligence. When you're looking and doing research on which provider, which fund manager to use, um, you're looking at the charge costs and charges. It's then having a look at that values assessment and finding out if, if does it look realistic? And again, with everything like this, it's people may disagree with your values assessment. You may put down, look, this is great. This is this product's the best product in the world. This is why I'm adding value. But you might have two of them and actually think, well, no, actually, I think that one adds more value. Each provider's one is going to say how they are adding value. Your job is going to be to interpret what they're saying and use that as your due diligence as to, okay, but which one do I feel is the is the best one for my client? Which one is going to be best suited for the client that we're looking after? couple of questions before we get into some more advisor stuff uh, let me pop one up on the screen here so this is one from Aaron like this one um, if IFAs are manufacturers are they bound to publicly publish their fair value assessments on their service I guess I'm guessing that's coming to me um, no I don't think they will be have, have to publish it um, I believe that a client may ask for it um, it might be something that a client may ask, because if you think about your what you're manufacturing, you're manufacturing your fair value assessments for your service proposition that you're offering um, and also the recommendation if you're putting together a portfolio. So the portfolio recommendation, that fair value assessment will be in every suitability report anyway, in some format, because you're detailing there why you are recommending this portfolio and why that's going to add value to you as a consumer. And then your service standards, um, your ongoing service, potentially a client might turn around and say, okay, well, how are you, how are you uh, justifying the fees that I'm going to be paying? And that will be in your service proposition documents. It won't necessarily be a, a standard values assessment. It will be in a different format. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, this is a good one as well from, from Sarah. Um, has the FCA actually specified value as being defined monetarily? So, Stephen, have, have they come to you uh, as a provider saying, right, this is what we think is OK and this isn't? No, no. And, and in fact, value, it's really good that the FCA has said that value is about more than just price, because I think we all know that cheapest isn't always best. So value is very much about the comparison between what the client will be charged over the complete lifetime with the product or service against the benefits you anticipate that they'll receive. Um, they've even talked about costs as not always being financial costs. So you've got non-financial costs. And I think that we should also be thinking about non-financial benefits. So a lot of the value that an advisor adds isn't just monetary value. It's not all about investment performance or saving on tax. It's also about offering peace of mind and about giving clients confidence that they know how much they can or can't spend, for example, through their retirement. So there's a lot of um, uh, intangibles around the whole value debate. Um, it's something that when I first started seeing the consumer duty final rules, Egon spends a lot of time talking about financial well-being and uh, we have 10 building blocks. Some of them are money and some of them are mindset towards financial well-being. And I felt there was a strong alignment between where the FC is heading in terms of this broader definition of, of helping clients meet their financial objectives, looking beyond the, the, the strict monetary uh, deliverables and looking more broadly. And another example, one of the mindset uh, building blocks we talk about is that you need to help your clients picture their future self. And I thought that linked really well into the whole concept of protecting clients from foreseeable harm. Because how can you help a client understand the value that you're adding, protecting them from a foreseeable harm in the future, if they can't picture their future self? So I see quite a lot of alignment here. And often when I'm, when I'm talking to advisors, I suggest that maybe when, when they're revisiting their advice services and how they'll articulate these, to make sure that they are done in a way that's aligned with the, the, the consumer duty, that it might be worth thinking about that financial well-being and to consider whether they start talking about how part of the value service that they offer is to, to help the customer with, with that wider uh, sense of financial well-being. So I definitely think that the whole consumer duty is moving away from a strict money basis into a much broader financial well-being type, type of basis. Yeah, thank you. Before we leave um, provider value for money behind, um, Becky's got a question here. So 
why hasn't the FCA insisted on a standard format? It makes comparisons difficult. So, Stephen, if I come to you first of all, um, is there kind of any kind of sort of back channel conversations between providers saying, let's all agree to do it in a certain way? Or do you just interpret what the FCA is saying and away you go? You know, Becky, I'm glad you asked this question because it was one of the things I kept banging on about when we were responding to consultations. It would have been so much more helpful if we had a standard format for the outcome of the value assessment. I don't think that the FC should have prescribed how you carried out your actual value assessment because I think that does depend on the nature of the product, on the nature of the service, um, on, on how you as a business want to position your product or service. But surely they could have just standardised the format in which we presented the outcome of that value assessment. Uh, so in terms of the likes of Aegon and our, our uh, outcome of value assessments, no, there hasn't been a, a, any, any chat in the background. Where there has been a bit of, of standardisation has been how fund managers will share the outcome of their value assessments with the likes of platforms. And I can't remember the name, but there's a, there's already some kind of technology solution which which is used linked to the, to, to, to the EFT or something like that. Um, and, and the idea is to add some fields onto that so that fund managers who will be passing thousands and thousands of outcomes of value assessments through to different platform providers will add some fields into that um, so that the platforms can pick that up rather than having to take 4,000 different bits of paper, I know it's not, you know, 4,000 different documents, all in different formats. So there's some standardisation at that level, but not as far as I've uh, uh, come across in terms of the likes of a, a personal pension or a, or, or, or a, a group personal pension. No standardisation, but it might come. And that might come because of demand from the advisor community to say, come on, guys, can you not all get together and be a bit more standardised? Yeah, time will tell. Because we haven't really seen these to, to have a good grasp of yet. But Gemma, do, do you think that paraplanners should be doing comparisons between these different value for money assessments? And what do we do with a lot of those subjective things? I think from the if we're when we're looking at the provider and the fund managers values assessments, um, we're already doing it um, because when we if you think about when we're doing our due diligence, we're looking at the costs of each provider. We're looking at the service levels that they're providing. We're looking at their complaints history. We're looking at the functionality of the platforms and the fun and whether it will allow us to do what we need to be able to do. So I think from from our perspective, what we what we're looking at when we're getting these values assessments is just looking at okay. This is what they've said. Do we agree with it? Do, does this substantiate everything else? It's, it's almost like the, the evidence, the extra due diligence that you're looking at. So in terms of comparison, comparison, uh, doing a comparison between them, yes, we will be doing a comparison, but it won't necessarily be a direct comparison because whilst one may be, it, again, it's, it's not just about price, is it? It's about all of the other functionality. And also if you've got a client who... Um, I'm just going to spitball here, but if you've got a client who needs pensions, ISAs, um, in an investment and an investment bond, and you've got one provider who can only do two of those, and you've got one provider that can do all three, well, actually, the result of the individual values assessment isn't really going to make much difference because the value for the end client is going to be that for that provider that potentially can do all of the things that that client needs to do. So it's we need to take the values assessments in mind. We need to be able to look at what the what the provider and the fund managers are saying, make sure that they are singing from the right hymn sheet and that we agree with everything that they're saying. And then that then becomes part of our extra evidence and our due diligence. Okay, so when we're talking specifically about advice and financial planning firms, what should we be looking at in terms of value for money, let's say in terms of our fees? Any tips on that? Oh, I was, I, I, there's been a few conversations I've had with firms about stuff like this. It's like when you take your car to a garage and you get your bill and the actual part that you needed is like 20 quid. And then you look and there's nine hours of labor charge and they've charged 80 pounds an hour for that labor. And you think, well, why? Why has it taken that long? And why am I paying that much money? Clients aren't paying for your time. I know there's been a few comments in the 
chat about the fact of its time cost. They're not just paying for your time, they're paying for the years of qualifications and your years of experience as well. Um, I remember hearing a story about a man who was called to a boatyard. So there were these fleet of ship, ships that were going out and they were behind schedule and the company was losing millions of pounds daily because they couldn't get these, these ships out because there was some, a problem with the hull and they couldn't work out what it was. And this man walked in and he walked up to the bottom of the hull walked all the way along it, got a hammer out of his bag and tapped the bottom of the hull. And immediately the problem solved. So next minute he sends his invoice in for something like £50,000. And they're like, £50,000? Literally all you did was tap the bottom of the boat. And it's like, well, yeah, but I knew where to tap. I knew where I needed to go. All of my years of experience, all of my qualifications knew what that problem was. And therefore I've provided you with that value and therefore that's what the cost is. There will be some things that we can be tangible about. We know what, how much time we're spending with each of our clients. We know how much fuel it's costing us to go out and see them. We know how much paperwork is being involved. But for our level of the industry, the, the intangibles are going to far outweigh the, the tangibles. The being at the end of the phone when a client's worried because they've seen something on the news and the markets have dropped and they don't know what, whether they should be taking their money out or they don't know if they need to do something or can they go and do that, buy that car that they wanted to, or can they retire tomorrow? You can't put a value on that. What firms need to be doing when they're looking at what they're charging is one, what does it actually cost me to provide the advice? Because you need to have your base costs nailed. You need to know and understand what it costs you as a business to look after your clients. And then two, okay, what do we offer our clients? What, what does our proposition look like? And do we have some clients that we do more work with than others? Do we have some clients that we've, we've all got those needier clients that are on the phone every day compared to the ones that actually don't want an annual review? They don't want to see you. They're just quite happy ticking along. Do we need to look at those and actually go, well, is it fair that the person who I'm dealing with on a weekly basis is paying the same amount of money as the person that I don't see year on year on year and we just have a five minute telephone call. Um, it's looking at your proposition and looking at that and working out what do we actually do for our clients. Again, somebody's uh, Jenny's put on the chat about everything being subjective. It is. It is completely subjective. What the SEA are asking us to do is to try and rewind years and years of once upon a time, someone plucked a percentage figure out of the air and went, that's what I'm going to charge for financial services. Why? And they're just asking us to take a look at our fees and go, OK, why are we charging that? And I think the biggest challenge will, um, and the biggest challenge I'm finding when I'm talking to firms is where you've got multiple advisors all charging different amounts. Because why is it fair that I could go and see Richard and be charged 1%? Or I go and see Stephen and I actually complain and go, oh, no, I don't want to pay 1%. And you go, oh, OK, I'll discount it then to 0.7. That's not fair. And that's what this is trying to look at as well as is whilst it might be something as an industry we've done for years and life isn't fair. What they're trying to get to this point is each client should be treated fairly. And each client, should, if I'm receiving the same service as somebody down the road from me, then I should be paying the same amount of money for it like there shouldn't be a massive discrepancy and if there is there needs to be a reason for it and ultimately what the fca are asking for you to do is to can you hand on heart turn around and say i'm adding value to my clients and i'm looking after my clients and i think most of you well, pretty much every firm can do that you just need to be documenting what you're doing for your clients and making sure that that's clear mm. um yeah it's quite a quite a tricky with this isn't it and quite a few people have asked about benchmarking you know we're an advice firm and we charge this and should we benchmark and i know that there's some resources out there so the fca did a survey three or four years ago about this and i know that lancat in their state of the advisor nation from the start of 2020 had a really good section in there about you know what what advisors were charging um and most when well, the most common answer was one percent a year then it was 0.75 then 0.5 just you know, plot spoilers there but it's worth getting hold of a copy of that one but do you think that if we're doing this, we should be benchmarking or, or and if so, how do we do that against other advice firms? Again, it's really, it's tricky because I could go to one firm tomorrow who does full full on financial planning, cash flow forecasting at every single review meeting, bespoke portfolios. The work that's being done is is massive. And then I can go to a firm down the road who do a model portfolio service that's off the shelf. They don't do cash flow forecasting. It's the review is a, a half an hour meeting and that's it. So it's really tricky to compare like for like in terms of costs. So, yes, I think you should look at the marketplace in terms of your type of clients. I know um, 
Vanguard and Dimensional have released some figures recently. I think they you can do a comparison on their sort of sites. Um, looking at the CISI, if you're a financial planning firm, looking at more firms that are like-minded and benchmarking yourself against them, I think trying to benchmark yourself against the industry is impossible because the service levels are so far, so extreme in compare um, with differences that you just physically can't do it. Yeah, so can I just ask a good question? Sorry, Stephen, go on. Sorry, I was just going to going to chip in there and say that I, I agree with everything Gemma said, and both in terms of benchmarking, um, uh, but I think that the thing is, and also comparing your charges against your costs. I think that the FCA doesn't say you've got to do that, does it? It says you may wish to, or something like that. And I know that lots of advisor firms are considering doing that. And one uh, aspect is if you feel you are out of line with the market, you might have to justify why you're out of line with the market. And, and I agree with, with you, Gemma, there's no point comparing apples with peers. You've got to look to compare yourself against, against your peer group. But it might be helpful to provide evidence that you're confident that you are delivering value because you've gone through that process. But it's more as a secondary consideration rather than a primary one. So this is a question from Anthony. Uh, will consumer duty see the end of percentage charging and a move towards time cost? Let me rephrase that a bit and fire that to Stephen, first of all. From a provider, do you feel there's going to be pressure on you to stop percentage charging, maybe go to fixed costs? Uh, no, I don't. Um, and in fact, if we did, we'd get into real problems with DWP who insist on percentage charges for auto enrolment. So um, I think there's, uh, uh, I think many clients uh, would prefer to be charged on a percentage basis rather than on a time cost basis. Um, I, 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 I just don't think it would be feasible for a, a firm like Egon to move to, to fixed fees. I think what's important is that you've got to look at whether you're delivering fair value across groups of customers. So you will need to consider, um, I mentioned earlier, the, the person with 50,000 to invest and the person with 5 million to invest. That's maybe a little extreme, but you'll have various uh, degrees of differences across the piece. And it may be that we, we move in certain uh, product sets towards reducing our charges once the fund exceeds a certain amount. We do that on our platform. We can't we stop charging for, for funds above, I can't remember what the figure is, but above a certain a certain amount. And that's to try to kind of uh, deliver fair value to pre consumer duty, but to deliver fair, fair value across groups of customers with different amounts to invest. So I do think we'll move towards seeing charges becoming more tiered. So there will be bans, so it won't be the same flat percentage for every client. It might be you charge 1% on the first 100,000 and then you reduce that for the next 100,000 and reduce it again. Um, uh, fixed fees can have a role, but if you're charging fixed fees, then then again, and the FC specifically says this, you've got to question whether someone with a small amount to invest, if you are delivering value to them, um, if you're charging a large fixed monetary amount for someone with not much money to invest, the chances are they are not getting value uh, from the overall pr product or service that you're offering, and, and you should remove them from your target group, target market, which in turn means we might increase the advice gap, which is unfortunate. You did mention RDR earlier on, Richard. Um, but no, I, I don't see a move away from percentages. I think they're here to see, albeit with some refinements around the edges. Gemma, do you think the same applies to advice charges? Yes. Um, so there are there are lots of arguments to say fixed fees are easier to justify because you can easily turn around and say you can time cost it. You can do it that way. Um, and there are arguments for for and against. I've spoken to firms who've said, well, if you're time costing it, if you know your minimum costs and you want to get a little bit more, well, maybe something's taken a little bit extra or I've had to do a little bit of extra research. There are always ways in which that fee fee structure could change um, ultimately what the fca are looking at they're not they're not saying that you have to be prescriptive in how you're charging they're one of their roles in the market is to um, have competitiveness they want to promote competitiveness between ifas they also want to bridge the advice gap they don't want clients being left without having advice they've categorically said that they're not trying to completely get rid of cross-subsidy 
that's something that's always been in the industry. That's always, and it's always been there. In terms of the reason why I mentioned that the starting point should be to look at your base costs is because you need to know as a business what your minimum is. How much does it cost you as a bare minimum to look after a client? Because if you are charging less than that, then you are going to have difficulties. Now, I noticed Rob mentioned um, in the comments about um, with IFAs are business people and that negotiations are part of life. I was with a firm recently who became um, recently or became authorised quite a few years ago. When they first started, they were desperate to get clients on board. They had no clients to start with. So every single client interaction they had, they had a standard charge in their head that they wanted to have and that would meet their minimums. Um, but every single client, they, because there was an, an all, they might not stay, they might not go, they were dropping the fees down. So they're now coming into consumer duty and looking at their charge of their client bank. And they've actually worked out that 60% of their clients are actually paying less than the minimum it's costing the firm to look after those clients because they did that negotiation because the client might walk away. So, yes, there are some scenarios where you might want to negotiate your fee, but that should be the exception rather than the norm. A solicitor will have no qualms in telling you what their costs are. And if you don't want to pay it, you don't pay it. You walk away. And I think we as an industry need to be a bit more prouder of the qualifications we've obtained, our experience and the work that we do for our clients to say that I know that I'm providing you with good value for money with my 1%, my 0.75. I know that that's going to provide you with good value. If you don't feel the same, that's absolutely fine. And I've got a firm who, are, who regularly do that for clients and say, okay, that um, we're not for you then. And lo and behold, two, three weeks down the line, the client ends up coming back um, because of the fact that if you've got someone who's very confident about the fact of I'm going to add value to your life, I'm going to help you achieve, achieve your financial objectives and potentially your life objectives and help you navigate this through. This is what my costs are and I'm not going to reduce it. Sometimes clients will actually find that a lot more empowering and think, no, they know what they're doing. They, they know that they're going to help me. It's not just a we shouldn't be scared of our fees. We should be comfortable. And what again, what this is looking at is. We should be able to hand on heart say today, this is what our charges are and this is why we charge that amount. This is what we'll do for you. If you can't answer that, then you're going to end up negotiating. But if you're confident that you're adding value, then why should you reduce your fees? Yeah, that's a really good answer. Uh, there's been a lot of comments in the chat as well about kind of time tracking and that sort of stuff. Um, if you're not tracking your time where you work, I'd strongly recommend you do it because it gives you so much valuable MI, particularly if you're charging two clients the same thing um, and you're asked to show how much it actually costs you. If you're charging sort of a, or it's taking half amount of time with one compared to the other, you know, you need to know this kind of stuff. If you're interested in time tracking, let us know. We can always put on a, a session about that, but we're kind of running out of time already, cranky. So I'm not going to go into more detail. Let's talk about client understanding, um, which is another big one that keeps coming up. So, Gemma, what's required from an advisor point of view uh, under the rules? So the, the reason client understanding is making sure that clients walk away from our meetings, from our recommendations, knowing what they've done. And I'm not when I say knowing what they've done, I'm not saying that they need to know absolutely every single thing about the products that they've, they've taken up. It's like when you take your car and I'll use a garage again as an analogy. I know that my car drives i know how to drive my car i know that the brake works and if i press my foot on the brake it it stops i know also know though that if the brake fails i could crash i could kill someone i could hurt myself something bad could happen when i take it to a garage do i need to know exactly what things that they've tweaked what they've done to my car no i need to know that i'm safe to go out on the road and i'm going to be able to get where i need to go without any accidents happening what consumer understanding is about is making sure that one we fully understand what a client needs are their objectives do they need money at set periods of time what are they looking to achieve two what does our recommendation meet that objective and if not have we highlighted that have we made sure that the clients are aware that there's some aspects of what they want to achieve that's not going to happen and do they understand the risks what consumer duty is trying to get to the point of is that if you get a client who in 10 years time i'll, I'll use endowments as an example loads of people took out endowments and interest only mortgages did those clients know that at the point that they needed to pay their mortgage, that potentially they might not have enough money to pay their mortgage? Was that clear? The compensation scheme is stretched to the hilt. Financial planning firms across the country are paying ridiculous amount in levies to fund the compensation scheme. And what we're trying to get to is a point where the ombudsman can actually turn around to a client and go, you told your advisor this, this is what you wanted to achieve. Your advisor did this to put you in that position. They warned you about X, Y, Z, 
you need to now take responsibility for your actions and take responsibility for the decision you made. Um, so Dom's commented about what this what suitability letters for. That's exactly right. However, if we look at our suitability reports, how much jargon is in them? How many words are there that, yes, I understand them, you understand them because we write them every day, we know what they are, but does the person in the street understand it? Do, do they really clearly understand what's been written? So from our from a power planner's perspective, it's looking at the documentations that you're issuing. Are they clear? Are they in a, written in a format that a client's gonna understand? Is all the, are all the key points in a set page? I know some people have looked at the layering approach, having that executive summary at the beginning set highlights, objectives, high level recommendation and risks, because ultimately we know that there's a large proportion of the, the population that don't read them. They don't read the suitability reports. Um, do we need to change the format of the reports for different people? So some people um, are better with visual things like graphs and colors and having things quite sort of stand out on a page, whereas others prefer numbers. Are we tailoring our reports to our clients? Are we ensuring that they're done in a way that a client can actually understand it? And that if it got to FOS, that FOS could look at it and go, no, this is, you understood. You could have clearly understood what was going on. Yeah, Stephen, I guess from a provider's point of view, you might come at it from a slightly different perspective, but what are your thoughts about client understanding and, and checking and those kind of things? Yeah. So I think there's two different scenarios. There are one-to-one -one communications and a lot of what an advisor does will be one-to-one, -one, although there are paragraphs in suitability letters that will be generic and it might be worth testing that a client, typical client, can understand what you've got within that generic paragraph, that they understand the point you're trying to get over. And then there are mass communications. And a lot of what we as a provider will do is when we're producing key features or, or, or other standard communications, they'll be going out to thousands of, of people. So the consumer understanding there is, is a little different, and it's about making sure that you've, for any significant communication, mass communication, that you've tested in advance, that it's understandable to the intended recipients, the, the group of recipients, and also, um, at times, again, if it's a significant communication, we should be testing afterwards that they did understand it, that, that we got the outcome we wanted, that we conveyed the message that we were seeking to get over from that. I think uh, I quite often get asked, um, should we be doing customer satisfaction surveys? Is that a way of, of testing that customers understand? I'm not sure. I think that maybe what I'd prefer to see is that finding a, a stage stages within within the advice process, maybe when it's going through a suitability report or whatever, to just checking in and saying to the customer, right, that was a key point there. Can I just check, can you tell me what you took from that? And 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 perhaps even documenting that the client, what the client said and that you've confirmed that they gave you an answer which, which uh, confirms to you that they had understood that key point. Um, and it's also about making sure you do this on a proportionate basis. Proportionality is key throughout all of this. You can't test everything all the time. So it's about identifying the key communications, the key points that your, your client needs to understand and to check understanding of those. Yeah, there's um, a lot of comments in the chat there, which, which are coming off the comments both of you have made there. Um, I just want to address a couple of those. So um, people talking about a one summary page at the start, executive summary, which I think is a great idea. Someone said that their compliance firm said, no, you can't do that because it encourages the client not to read the report. That sounds a bit weird to me. If anybody's in DB pension world, you know at the very start of the report, you're going to do a one-page summary about the key headlines and the key costs. So that's prescribed by the FCA. So I don't know why they'd say that one. Just on, on the checking understanding, I've seen quite a few different ways of doing this one. And, and I think, personally, I think that the weakest way is doing a kind of a survey saying on a scale of one to 10, how brilliant are we? You know, and, and how much did you understand? And the clients are not going to want to look stupid and going to want to think you're, you're good. So they're going to give you useless information. So some of the firms we work with have started doing very targeted sort of single questions. They're using maybe an app uh, like Money Info or something. And there's a question pops up when the client logs in saying, what was the best part about your recent annual review? Um, or which bit of your suitability report did you find hardest to understand? You know, really focused questions like that, I think are really interesting. 
and you can start to gather the MI around those as well and start to build a really good picture. So if anybody ever comes to ask, you know, you've got some evidence there. If we come back to evidence again, don't worry. We started there and we're going to finish there. Um, we've run out of time. We had more. Maybe we'll have to come back and revisit this because we had quite a bit more to talk about. But um, I know a lot of you are on a lunch break, so we won't take it uh, any longer. But I found that really interesting. I've learned plenty in that session as well. Um, so Gemma and Stephen, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us on that one. And for all the great questions and comments uh, in the chat room. So we didn't get time to get to all of those, but they were fantastic. Always keep them coming. Uh, just finish again with a reminder, we've got our personal development power-ups on the 12th of May. You can book that on our website. If you want to keep talking about uh, consumer duty or anything else power planning related, don't forget the big tent is always open. Uh, lots of people on there asking and answering questions. Uh, you can book all of our next events on our websites. Uh, and a thank you to our supporters once again. That's uh, the good people at Aegon, Barnett, Waddingham, Just, Energy Wealth, Novia, Parmenian, Timeline and Transact. So a final thank you to Gemma and Stephen. And we'll see you all again very soon. Goodbye. Have a good afternoon.